This is the Good Judge Men Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I am Wade Paget, And I'm Tane Kell, and together we will be your hosts. The Good Judgment Podcast is designed for judges, lawyers, and others who are interested in judges and the law and procedure that occurs in a courtroom. Now, our focus is on Georgia law and Georgia judges. We normally address issues dealing with substantive law and procedure, but occasionally we have some other topics that we think might be of interest for judges to consider. For those who have been listening to our podcast, we want to thank you and hope that you'll tell somebody else. And don't forget, folks, if you want to contact us, you can send us an email to goodjudgepod at gmail.com, or you can follow us on the uh, web at goodjudgepod.com. All right, folks, welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And today we are joined again with our good friend and friend of the podcast. What do we call them? A friend of podcast? Friend of Good Judgment? FOPC. Friend Fox. of podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Um, and that is Keith Wood from the Cherokee County Probate Court. And we had previously talked about some probate issues in general, but we're going to get a little more specific now. Because there is an interplay, Tane, between what they do as it relates to children and the jurisdiction they have and what we do relating to children, right? Yeah, that's right. And uh, we, we can, we've talked about a little bit about the differences between guardianships and, uh, for children and, and custody ch- and child custody and some other podcasts. And we thought it'd be really great to bring somebody in and talk about what that really means when you have a guardianship. Now, Keith, when you start off, can you help us understand what a guardianship is and how that is different than when like Tane and I deal with custody cases. Sure, absolutely. So a guardianship is a is a a creation of a court. Essentially what the court is doing and when they are appointing a guardianship, there's a determination made that a person is in fact in need of a guardian. Whether that be because they're a minor child and need someone in place of possibly a parent. Or if they're an adult, if they don't have the capacity to make or communicate responsible decisions for themselves, what the court is doing. So in this, many of those out there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what the court is doing in that situation is they are then appointing a person to step in that role and serve as a guardian or, in the case of their estate, their assets, a conservator to have authority over that since that person the ward cannot do it themselves. All right. So we're going to call the person under the conservatorship or guardianship the ward. Okay. But it could be an adult. It could be a a, a child. Correct. Okay. So if the ward needs somebody to literally care for them day to day, that would be a guardian or conservator? That would be a guardian. So if it's if it's somebody that is perfectly capable of living their own on their own, but they just can't make financial decisions, that's the the other. That would be a conservator. So my my recollection is that Bruce Wayne Batman was the uh, guardian over uh, Dick Grayson, who was Robin uh, in that relationship. Is that is that the same kind of relationship we're talking about here? Maybe. Really I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with that, except the whole costume and cape thing, I don't think. Is that a requirement of of guardians? Yeah, that would be an interesting thing for our podcast listeners to know. I, I have never put that in an order. Oh, maybe I can okay. start thinking about it. Well, I, you know, I don't want to digress, but I just thought that would be something that no, we need you to would never want right to digress. Um, so let's talk for a minute about can the guard, is the guardian and the conservator necessarily the same person? 
they aren't necessarily the same person. I think when you're dealing with adult wards, you typically are going to see you're typically going to see the same person be a guardian conservative. It's not required. It just typically happens that way. You know, sometimes there's family dynamics that make that a job that needs to be a separate job. But as you know, in, in general, I think most of the time we see those as the same person. So one, and, and I know that there are a lot of other issues that we have to be aware of, but we're living in a world where people are living longer, but not necessarily always have all their faculties about them. Sure. That is sort of what you're talking about that frequently, I, not always, but you know, it could be an injury, it could be a, a birth defect, it could be a hundred things, but that would cause somebody to need a guardian. How does somebody, does somebody, can somebody come and say, I need a guardian? Or is it usually a third party saying this person needs a guardian? Like people saying Tane probably needs a guardian versus Tane Certainly saying, someone to make better decisions. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, instead of Tane saying, I need a guardian. Well, the statute provides that you typically you're going to have two individuals, two interested parties coming in and filing a petition for guardianship. However, it specifically allows that one of those people can be the person that's going to be the ward, the proposed ward. So there is room for that. I do not see it very often. Uh, it has, I think we've had it in our court maybe once or twice. As a rule, it's going to be two interested parties that are coming in asking the court. And you have to have that as a minimum uh, to come in and petition to be appointed as a guardian. So let's talk a little bit about the probate court's jurisdiction. You are the, you have the exclusive and original jurisdiction over these issues related as it relates to adult, correct? Correct. So if it's if it's an adult guardianship or conservatorship, it is exclusively with the probate court, not other any other court. It starts in our court. We have all jurisdiction over both the establishment of the guardianship and conservatorship, the monitoring of it, removal of any guardian conservator, any adjustments that need to be made to that guardianship and conservatorship. That all lies within the purview of the probate court. So if, let's say Tane, Tane, you like it when I pick on you. Let's say Tane sure. had somebody in front of him that, frankly, he believed was so disengaged with reality that they needed a guardian. Non compass mentis? Is yes. that the uh, Latin phrase? Oh, my God. So could he simply send that to you if you were the probate judge in that county and say, Keith, I think this guy needs a guardian? No, I don't think he could do that. What has to happen for that to be initiated? What has to happen is we have to have a petition, someone, again, who are two interested parties or one interested party with an affidavit from a physician that's evaluated or examined the, the proposed ward. And they have to petition the court because we've got to, we've actually got to make a determination whether, in fact, they are, you know, incapacitated in some way or another in order to appoint that guardian and conservator. It's, it's not going to be someone else saying, I think that this is the case from another court. It's going to have to originate with us. And that's how that process starts. Now, I guess, Tane, we could always send somebody for an evaluation if it was a criminal case or whatever. But, sure. but, but I, I guess the point I wanted to make sure everybody was clear on is that while Superior Court judges and other classes of court judges have a certain amount of authority, you can't. There, it's, it's sort of jurisdictional that it must be two people or one person and a, and a physician. Correct. And I think even, you know, when you're talking about like uh, dealing with things like criminal insanity or incompetence to stand trial, even that in and of itself is not does not mean that the person needs a guardian or conservator. That just is that has to do with a criminal matter and it's not a bigger issue. Okay, so 
compare that to the conservatorship. If somebody needs a conservatorship but doesn't necessarily need a guardianship, can that happen? Or are they usually tied together? They're usually tied together. I mean, typically, if you have someone who's having difficulty making decisions in their life, it's going to it's going to run the gamut of all issues in their life. However, there are occasions when you do have someone that they can manage their day to day, but they can't handle money or responsibly handle money. Well, in the news recently, uh, Britney Spears for several years has had a conservatorship over her management of of her finances and and the the you know, aspects of her estate while still going out, working, doing the things that, you know, you would expect somebody to do. That's just something that's been in the news recently. It it has been. Of course, that originated in California, and I can't, you know, vouch for how that process works Who knows what that process (laughs) is? You know what's so funny? When we were in law school, and I don't know, I I think I I went to Georgia State. You were Georgia. You were... Georgia State. Okay. We sort of learned, at least at Georgia State, there was the law... Then there was the law of New York and the law of California. Right. And, and then, Louisiana, the I'm code sorry, Napoleon. Exactly. And, and, and my buddies in Louisiana also had a different set of rules. So yeah. tell me a little bit more about the – what if the ward says, I don't need a guardian. I don't want a guardian. Well, they absolutely have the right. I, the, the thing about a guardianship and conservatorship, I and mean, when you think about what's at stake, you're essentially appointing someone to take over the life of some other person. The thing about – guardianship and conservatorship petitions is there's a number of safeguards that we kind of build in if the law builds in to prevent someone from being you know railroaded into having a guardian and conservator yeah i was wondering about that because if you get two people who conspired together to try to take over someone's uh, you know their money or their their life essentially you could potentially have that danger how do you how do you guard against that keith so the way the way the process works for us is once someone files a petition for a guardianship or a conservatorship over a person that's alleged to be incapacitated, the court's going to do a number of things. Number one is that proposed ward is going to get notice uh, that someone's actually filing a petition. That's probably a good idea. (laughs) Always a good idea. (laughs) Hey, by the way, someone wants to take over your entire life. Exactly. And then we also appoint them independent counsel. We appoint them someone. If they don't hire their own counsel, we appoint them someone to represent them. And who that's are, their attorney. Who are those people? I mean, how, how do you? How does that happen? There are attorneys that it's like an appointed attorney in any other court. So, mm-hmm. like in a criminal matter, if someone can't afford an attorney, you would appoint them an attorney. It's a similar thing, except in probate court, it is a it's a got to do. The person's not going to be able to waive their attorney. We're going to give them an attorney. Yes. We're also going to make them undergo an independent evaluation, someone that not, not who's not already evaluated. Medical evaluation. Correct. Medical evaluation to determine their competency. So those things are put in place in order to give the court some idea about, you know, does this person, I don't want to say consent, because there might be some question of whether they have the ability to consent, but are their interests, are their interests being represented uh, in court? Versus the people that have filed the petition. And and speaking of that, I mean, is there some requirement for a hearing or that you have a hearing? I take the position that the statute's pretty explicit that you've got to have a hearing. And I have a hearing in every guardianship case. I don't... Because I think it's really important that the court understand why the issue, why they need a guardian, what's the issues that are preventing them. Because one of the things the court is supposed to be doing is they're supposed to be making a guardianship that is the least restrictive. 
And so you need evidence to do that. I got to know what this person can and can't do so we can kind of mold our guardianship to best serve that ward. That's what our interest is, is the needs of that ward. Well, if you make a determination that a guardianship is necessary, how do you how do you determine how do you determine who is the guardian or or who would serve as the guardian? Is it always the person who petitions for the guardianship to be put in place? It's not always, and typically what we have is you'll have someone file a guardianship and either either they can't do it themselves. They know that there needs to be a guardianship or a conservatorship. They can't do it themselves. They may want to nominate somebody else or perhaps even the ward themselves has nominated someone else. So the court may appoint someone. They got to, the court's ultimate duty is to appoint someone, appoint someone that's in the best interest of the ward. That may be the petitioner, but sometimes it's not. And what you can sometimes have, especially in conservatorships, is you have you have someone who's a petition to be a conservator. We require them to be bonded against the assets that the ward has, and they can't get bonded. And so they're not going to be able to serve as a conservator if they can't get bonded. So we we have to kind of go off the off the chart there and point somebody. A lot of times that's going to be the county conservator because uh, we know that's a person that we can trust and get bonded. Well, let's just, just take a second in that. Explain to the folks who might listen to the Good Judgment podcast what a – you say the county conservator like right. it's an office sitting around waiting for something to do. Tell everybody a little bit about what that is. Sure. There's there's a individual that in my county, I have one person that does it, that's appointed by me to serve as a county administrator and the county conservator. It's two different offices, same responsibility. Administrator handles the states, county conservator handles conservatorships. It is a it is a individual in my county, it's an attorney. And in those cases where either because there's no one else to serve or the person who's asked to serve can't do it, we can appoint that person to handle those matters and act as a, a party who can serve as conservator in those cases. Hopefully they have a little bit of experience. They know how to do this. I mean, that's the game plan. That, that is correct. And, and, you know, in my case, as I said, it's, it's an attorney, someone who's practiced a long time, is, you know, pretty savvy, good at dealing with family members that are you know, maybe getting antsy with the how the money's being handled. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you a question, a scenario that pre- frequently seems to present itself these days. Um, let's say you have a, an elderly person and they start to show some signs that maybe they're not managing their affairs very well or, or you know, they seem they seem their, their family recognizes, hey, you know, mom needs a little bit of help here, but we don't really have the legal authority to go in and and do anything on her behalf. She has bank accounts. She has bills to pay. She has all of these things. And so what do they do? How do they start that process? What what should they do if they feel like that, that someone needs to come in and, you know, maybe help out in that situation? In those situations, what typically happens is they're going to come in and they're going to get the standard form petition to file a to file for getting appointed as a guardian conservator. Mm-hmm. And once that petition files, it starts the process of, you know, the court evaluating, is this a case that looks like, you know, it's like a probable cause finding. Do we mm-hmm. really think this is something that can happen? Of course, can, if the court doesn't believe there's probable cause, we can dismiss it. It's going to get filed. It's going to go through the process of giving notice to the ward, again, appointing the attorney, appointing the evaluator. And again, the court reviewing it to make sure it's a legitimate petition. And ultimately, assuming that the finding is made uh, that the person needs a guardian or conservator, then the court's appointing whoever 
thinks it's appropriate, the court thinks is appropriate in determining what authority they need in order to manage this person's affairs. So you can fashion a guardianship in, in that is unique to the ward's needs. You can. Um, it does get a little bit difficult to do that sometimes, mostly because in probate court, we have a, a, a fairly high number of pro se or self-represented litigants, I think is the term we use now. When those self-represented litigants come in, they don't really, you know, they don't really know necessarily what they're asking for. And the court on their own can obviously grant or modify or you know, change what authority um, that ward should or shouldn't have. And there's a number of things that are going to be automatically removed, rights that are automatically going to be removed from that ward once the guardianship or conservatorship is established. The court can say, well, you would automatically lose the right to marry. However, we think you have enough ability to make good decisions as far as that, to the extent good decisions can be made about that, <laughs> um, to be able to, to con- contract and marry. So we, we have the authority to do that. I don't do that a whole lot. I've done it maybe a few times. But, you know, as a rule, you're generally what you're generally seeing is, you know, those those that bundle of rights that are automatically removed, simply getting automatically removed. All right. So you mentioned something a while ago that, that sparked some interest in me. And, 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 and I, I just I feel I feel bad about not knowing this. I should know this. But you, we could ask your wife. Mm-hmm. No, not that. Oh, um, so you have the right as an adult to name someone to be your guardian in the event you ever need one. I forget in the manner in which you do that. There's, there's actually a few different ways that you can do that. Number one is you can simply have a writing. It doesn't have to be any kind of formal thing. It just says, you know, I nominate this person if I need a guardianship or a conservatorship that this person's going to be. It's just a writing. How, says, how binding is that on you? As far as the court is concerned, when you look at the, the – there's basically a list of preferences. When, we, when we're appointing a guardian conservator, there's a list of preferences. This is the person that's first preference, this person's second preference, and you're generally going to start with the top. The first preference is someone who's been nominated by the guardian or you know they've expressed a preference for and again, you can do that by a writing, a simple writing, but where I'm seeing it more and more is where someone has what's called an advanced directive. And in that, in the standard form advanced directive now, there's a specific section that says, if I need a guardian or conservative appoint, appointed, this is the person that I want to do it. Just to be clear, you're talking about someone who's been nominated by the ward. By the, the ward, correct. Ward. correct. At, a, at a previous point in time when they were competent to do so. That right. is correct. So it says, I, Wade Paget, being of sound mind and body, do hereby nominate uh, Tane Kell to be my guardian in the event that I should ever need such guardian this blank day of our Lord 2019. As long as... Could you just is, sign this? Yeah. Right, right? As long as it doesn't say conservator. I understand. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I All right. So, so you can do it through a writing. You can do it through your advanced directive. Can you do it in your will? Or, or is a will a thing before it's? A will is not a thing until you're dead. It's just a piece of paper. Wait, right. you don't, you don't, you don't need a guardian if you're dead, man. I understand, but I didn't know if you could do it as a part of that process. It's just not a thing, Wade. So, on Article Six courts, we'll go on to something else now. Sure. On Article Six courts, does does it change? Does anything change in the arena of guardianships and conservatorships because you're Article Six? The only thing that changes as far as in the realms of guardianship and conservatorship, maybe a couple of things. Again, we have we have some expanded jurisdiction as far as estate planning and things of that nature. That's concurrent with Superior Court. Really, the more significant thing 
and this is not just in guardianships and conservatorships, is appellate issues. So if I determine that someone needs a guardian and conservator and I'm in Article Six court and someone disagrees with my decision, uh, I'm always surprised that someone does, but when it does happen, their right to appeal that decision is to the Court of Appeals, whereas in a non-Article Six court, the appeals process goes to Superior Court. So Superior Courts are then acting as the appeal court, although they're doing it as a de novo appeal. So yeah. they're basically, I mean, they're they're taking all the pleadings that were in the probate, but they're basically rehearing the guardianship case. I'll tell you, there is, as a Superior Court judge, when, when they say appeal and de novo in the same sentence, it, it's just like, oh, God. Because yeah. it's already been litigated once Absolutely. by by but someone we, who does it all the time and who who, who assumably has that expe- that that expertise and they heard it and they made a decision and then when it comes to us de novo then we don't get the benefit even of of the time savings if nothing else of receiving the evidence that was received in the other case we we start from zero right you start with the pleadings and that's pretty much it yeah that's those are those are unfun things. Now, you you mentioned removing people who are guardians and conservators. You can do that. That can be by anyone. Could the bank do it if they thought somebody was that a conservator was acting out of control? Could a could a daughter or a son or a cousin the, the statute is pretty broad. I mean, it says any interested party, even the court on its own motion can can generate those those you know, either the removal or the accounting or something like that. Because, again, we are responsible for overseeing that guardianship and conservatorship. So, you know, we if we if somebody comes in and they file a return because conservators are supposed to file a return that says this is what I'm doing with the money and something smells fishy. The court itself can then cite that person to come to court and say, explain yourself. Any interested party can do that, whether it's coming from a bank or a relative or, you know, any interested party. Well, can you. Can you kind of sum up for us? Let's say a guardianship uh, is a guardian is appointed or a conservative conservator is appointed. Let's just kind of run down. So, what does that mean in terms of the rights of the person who's the ward or or for whom a conservatorship or a guardianship has been appointed? Well, I, here's what I generally tell, particularly parents, because what we see, you know, fairly frequently is parents that have a child that has developmental disabilities. And so the child turns 18, and when you turn 18, there's a presumption that you're competent. They have to get a guardianship and conservatorship in order to come in and be able And in to- my experience, presumption of competency at 18 is a pretty big presumption. Yeah. <laughs> Very rebuttable. <laughs> Very easily rebuttable, yes. But anyway, I'm sorry. The, uh, it, and and I, I, I reflect that remark, actually. <laughs> Much older than that, and that probably would still apply. The, the The duties of a guardian are essentially oversight of that person's person. You're you know you're consenting to medical treatment. You're you're you know determining where they're going to live. You're having access to information. Things that you know can be impacted by other laws that would restrict that right unless you know unless there's something in place. So you know having that person in there. They they are removing those rights from that person and assuming those rights on their own. They make all those decisions. Okay. And then what kind of rights does someone who has a conservatorship or a guardianship over them, what do they retain? 
they do retain some rights. For example, I mean, they have a right to associate with who they want to within within some restrictions. Obviously, mm-hmm. the court can make a determination that you know if there's someone who's stealing their money, they shouldn't have contact with that person. Mm-hmm. They still have a right to refuse treatment. If the person doesn't want to take medication, you know, you can't really hold them down and force pills down their throat. So there is some of those rights that that are still there. They can vote. They can vote unless the court specifically removes that right. They can do a will unless the court specifically removes that right because the right to make a will is a pretty big right. Mm-hmm. And the legislature in their wisdom has said, you know, we're only going to use we're only going to require a small amount of competency in order for you to be able to do a will. So that's not automatically removed. The court has to make a determination that that right needs to be removed. And what if someone's restored to competency? What if, or, or what if they believe they've been restored to competency after this process? It's sort of like a guardianship in reverse. Essentially, they can file a petition asking the court to restore them. Uh, it kind of goes through a backwards. You know, we we do the evaluation, appointing an attorney, just like we do it. We would in the establishing the guardianship. The only difference is, in order to establish a guardianship, a conservatorship, the standard of proof is clear and convincing evidence. Pretty high standard. Mm-hmm. When you do a restoration, it's not. It's a preponderance. So we're giving more of a you know a benefit to the person who is applying for a restoration, because we want you know we want to make the assumption that the person is in fact you know has that ability. Well, you know this this stuff is is fascinating, and 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 Tane made a uh, a point a while ago that I think is worth reiteration. Probate judges become experts in these things, mm-hmm. and and that's why, as a judge of another class of court, there are times that things come in front of me, and I'm thinking to myself, my gosh, this needs to go to probate court because they know how they know better how to deal with this, and sometimes that's true with juveniles and different things. But sometimes that is true with some of the adults. So as you will see from the Good Judgment podcast, we are committed to trying to be a one-stop shop for all the different classes of court. Right, Tang? Sure. Uh, and don't forget, if you want to check into the materials, the outlines from, uh, from this particular podcast, go to goodjudgepod.com. And if you ever have any notes or comments for us, contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. So thanks again, Keith, for being here. Glad to yeah, be. thanks. This is Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Jim Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law. Without them, we really could not do this. And thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped to edit some of our stupidity and awkwardness. Hey, but nobody can get it all. That's a good point. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allowed us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. And thanks to our NGAO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, University of Georgia College of Law or anybody else with an acronym or alphabet name or anyone else for that matter contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com if you have any praise and contact someone else with any of your complaints (laughs) but seriously we would love to have your feedback both good and bad send those comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com and visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I am Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell, and thanks for listening. 
Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this one. Any last thoughts before we wrap this session up? No, let's just turn it over to the studio audience, and the crowd goes wild. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.